Well, tonight I want to ask you to turn your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 17 as we continue our study of this portion of the Old Testament, 1 Kings 17. And if you don't have a Bible, that's all right. You can follow along as I read. Tonight we come to, I think, a, a very exciting portion of 1 Kings in the Old Testament where we come across a man named Elijah the Tishbite. Not the Tickbite, the Tishbite. And uh, he's quite a character. And anyone who says the Bible is boring, I would advocate has not read 1 Kings and has not read about Elijah the Tishbite or about Elisha, who's going to come later. This is uh, wonderful material. But of course, we're learning not about a man. We're learning about the God who sends the man. So I'm going to read tonight from God's word, 1 Kings 17. I'm going to read the chapter, and we'll be looking at that tonight together. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As Yahweh, God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Then the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And it will be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to sustain you there. So he went and did according to the word of Yahweh. For he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens were bringing him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he would drink from the brook. Now it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of Yahweh came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and remain there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to sustain you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks And he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. So she went to get it. And he called to her and said, Please get me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As Yahweh your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me, and afterward you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that Yahweh sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by the hand of Elijah. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? 
You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. And he said to her, give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. Then he called to Yahweh and said, O Yahweh, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am sojourning by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to Yahweh and said, O Yahweh, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. And Yahweh heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and, became, and he became alive. Then Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know this, that you are a man of God, and that the word of Yahweh is in your mouth, in your mouth is truth. Amen. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you for every portion of your word. And we confess that some portions are a little more delightful to us and interesting than others. We know that all of it is profitable, but we're thankful to be in this this portion of your word, which tells of stories, true stories that amaze us. We pray that now as we study, we pray you would bless us to understand the timeless truths and principles you have for us. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Well, I wanted to title this message, The Word of Yahweh. And of course, Yahweh might be a little jarring for some who haven't heard that before, but maybe your Bible translation just says the Lord, and that's fine. Um, I, most of the time I read from uh, my New American Standard Version, which just says the Lord. But in the evening services, I've been reading from this Legacy Standard, which, which does translate that Hebrew word for the Lord as Yahweh, which is what his personal name is. Um, you can even hear a little bit of Yahweh in Elijah. You hear the last letters of Elijah's name? It's for Yahweh, and El means God. Yahweh is God. That's what Elijah's main name means. But this is about the word of Yahweh. The word of Yahweh is referenced not only in verse 1, 2, verse 5, verse 8, verse 14, 15, if you equate the word of Elijah with Yahweh, also in verse 16 and 24, not only in all those different verses, which I know you couldn't follow along, but last week as well in the last chapter. It's this theme, the word of the Lord or the word of Yahweh. Let me slow down. Look with me again so you just see that I'm not cheating. I'm telling you the truth. Verse 1, as Yahweh the uh, God lives, except by my word. So that is uh, Elijah is the prophet of Yahweh, and so it's his word there. Then verse 2, the word of Yahweh came. Verse 5, Elijah did according to the word of Yahweh. Verse 8, the word of Yahweh came to Elijah. Verse 14, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Verse 
15. The word of Elijah in this chapter is synonymous because he is the mouthpiece of God with the word of the Lord. Verse 16. The bowl of the flower was not exhausted according to the word of Yahweh. And then verse 24. The woman confesses uh, the word of Yahweh in your mouth is truth. So this is highlighting for us the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord. Some of you have seen over the past few years, I assume they're still up in, in, uh, our, in the UCC churches in our area, uh, of which uh, there's the uh, headquarters over here in Pembroke. Uh, you see this theme they've had nationally, God is still speaking. And and um, in this text, we learn that God is still speaking, but not in the way that our UCC friends would suggest. What they mean is that God is still speaking, turning away from what he said in his word, and he's speaking in new ways, and he's changed his mind. We find the exact opposite here in chapter 17. The Lord is still speaking, but it's nothing new. I want you to look with me tonight. I have five observations or points about the word of Yahweh. The first one is, it's an invasive word. Now, I know we, we're used to thinking of invasive as a word that's associated with weeds. I, I, I can't help weeding. I have, this, I have this problem. When I walk out the door, I just see weeds. I see them in my uh, perhaps my lawn, and they're all there. Um, and that, but in our in the flower garden that my parents made, now we live in there where they live formerly. And there's these weeds coming up through the rock, and it's just you know I just have to pull them out, and and I never get them all, but there they are. And and some of those are native, but we all know that there are invasive weeds. One of them is bamboo. Um, you may not know this, maybe some of you do, but bamboo once upon a time in, in the 19th century was, a, was uh, brought over and it was used as an ornamental in gardens. Well, the problem is bamboo spread and now it's just about everywhere and there's about nothing you can do to stop it. It'll grow anywhere. I've seen it grow up through concrete, middle of pavement, in the middle of a city and you can put gasoline on it you can burn it you can do whatever you want but that stuff's going to grow up but that's not my point this word is an invasive word maybe that's better for my next point that illustration but what I mean is it's suddenly you don't expect it remember in chapter 16 if you were here with us last night last week rather we heard we heard last Sunday evening we heard about Ahab and Jezebel this is where the theme for Darth Vader starts in. Dun, 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 dun. I mean, it's bad. Ahab is bad. Jezebel is bad. I mean, they are bad, 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 bad. We've had some series, a series of bad kings in Israel, but if we know our biblical history at all, we know Ahab and Jezebel. I mean, just think of it, the name Jezebel. You may not even know the Bible, and Jezebel just doesn't have nice connotations. And she is one mean character, and she is not from God's people. She is a Baal worshiper, and Ahab marries Jezebel. And it is in chapter 16, verse 31, highlighted. It happened that as though it had been a trivial thing for Ahab to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, as if that wasn't bad enough, the text says he took Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, 
king of the Sidonians, as a wife, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Things are bad in the north in Israel. There's not much evidence of godliness. There's not much evidence of any following of, of the Lord. It's here and there, but Ahab and especially Jezebel, she's doing everything in her power to wipe them out. We're going to learn in the chapters to come that Jezebel is on a prophet extermination um, mission. She is on a mission to find and exterminate all true prophets and preachers of the word of God. And she's been quite successful. So it's bad. The end of chapter 16, things are bad. In fact, the last thing of chapter 16 is this, so bad are the days that God many years ago, many generations ago through Joshua, remember Joshua, had God had issued a curse upon anyone who would dare rebuild the gates and the walls of Jericho. Well, so bad were the days of Ahab that Ahab didn't care. And Heel, the Bethlehite, apparently he didn't care. And he just went on and built the gates of Jericho, laid its foundation, no matter if it cost him the death of his firstborn and of his youngest son. These are evil, dark days. But then suddenly, verse 1 of chapter 17, out of nowhere, we learn of Elijah the Tishbite. He was of the settlers of Gilead. And out of nowhere, he says to Ahab, there's not a long introduction. We don't have a, a resume, much of a resume on Elijah. He just suddenly comes out of nowhere as a force for God. God sends him, and he has a word for Ahab, and it is a sudden, startling word. I want to encourage you. I've been giving you a few quotes from this commentary from Dale Ralph Davis, and I don't typically, as I say this often, but I'm always nervous when people are visiting or they think all that guy does is read commentaries. How hard is that? Uh, but, and I, you don't usually, but, but this is so helpful. He actually quotes Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary on these verses from a man named Ronald Wallace. And, and this is very in keeping with what I had to say this morning and what we looked at in the book of Esther about the evil days that we live in. This is very encouraging. To see Elijah, says Wallace, appear so suddenly reminds us that we need not despair when we see great movements of evil achieving spectacular success on this earth. For we may be sure that God in unexpected places has already secretly prepared his counter movement. God always has his ways of working underground to undermine the stability of evil. God can raise men for his service from nowhere. Therefore, the situation is never hopeless where God is concerned. Wherever, whenever evil flourishes, it is always a superficial flourish. For at the height of the triumph of evil, God will be there, ready with his man and his movement and his plans to ensure that his own cause will never fail. That's good. And it really is, in essence, what we learned this morning in the book of Esther, that God had his man, Mordecai, and his woman, Esther, in some of the most evil and dark days, God is always working to undermine evil. And this is so encouraging. 
So it's an invasive word. It's an invasive word. God does not ask permission in evil times and say, excuse me, is it okay if my voice would be heard? (laughs) He doesn't ask, um, you know, pardon me, may I have a, a, a place at the table? He doesn't ask, he doesn't ask for permission. He doesn't look to polls whether his word is wanted or liked. His word is invasive. It comes suddenly when you don't expect it out of nowhere and it doesn't ask to be heard. Secondly, I want you to notice, and I'm looking here at verse 1, it's a consistent word. It's an invasive word, and this word of Yahweh is a consistent word. Why do I say that? Well, if you want to turn back with me for a moment to Deuteronomy, keep your finger in chapter 17 of 1 Kings, and if you don't want to turn back, you can just listen. That is fine. First, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 16 and 17. Many hundreds of years earlier, God had promised through his servant Moses that if ever the people of Israel disobeyed Yahweh, the Lord, and went and served other gods and other idols, that there are certain things that would happen, that he would curse them. And he was quite specific. He says in Deuteronomy 11, Beware, verse 16, lest your hearts be deceived and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Now just pause. What did we just learn in 1 Kings about Ahab? He marries Jezebel and we learned that he worshiped the Baals. Okay, so that's the setting. If that happens, God said through Moses back in Deuteronomy, Verse 17, the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord, which the Yahweh, which Yahweh is giving you. See, I'm not used to the new translation here either. Deuteronomy 28, one more passage I want to look at. I want you to see the consistency God had said, this is what will happen if you go after other gods, other idols, and worship them. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 23. If they go after other idols, the heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you iron. Yahweh will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down unto you until you are destroyed. Did any of you happen to drive out back today? Well, if you do, or even if you walk out there, right now we're in the process of kind of redoing that back parking lot, and Keith Carter's been working on it. And one of the things that's really hot out is dry out right now. So as we pull some of that surface uh, dirt off in certain places, and, and, and it's just this fine powder and I noticed when I drove back there this morning and even yesterday when I came by that after the, there was just this cloud of this very fine dust that just filled the air back there because it's so dry. It's like powder. Well, God had said if the people ever departed from him and worshiped other gods that the sky above would be hard as bronze, the ground beneath would be hard as iron 
And because of that, because it would be dry, it would begin to to be like fine dust, fine powder. And if you're ever in that, it's quite miserable, actually. I think we went camping as a family one year. I can't remember necessarily where it was. And it was just so dry that every time someone drove by with their vehicle, this dust just went up, went all over your tent, all over of everything. There's a house over on Hutchinson Road as we I go to the way I go to our house, and it's a dirt road, and it's a very lovely property, but I would not want to live there. I think actually Chris and I looked at that house 12 years ago when we first um, moved to this area, back to this area. And, and the problem is it's in a very dry spot on the dirt road, and so as you drive by, anybody drives up, this cloud of dust goes up, and it goes all over the house, all over your cars, all over everything. Now, that was the kind of judgment that God was bringing upon Israel. And this word that he issues through Elijah the Tishbite to King Ahab is absolutely consistent with what he had spoken through his servant Moses centuries before. It's a consistent word. Thirdly, I want to point out that his word, the word of Yahweh, is a persistent word. It's not only consistent, it is persistent. It it, it doesn't stop. It won't be stopped. It will keep going forward. You can't dry it up. You can't shut it off. You can't stop it. It's important to recognize in verses 2 through 7 that Elijah is a prophet of the Lord. He didn't, this isn't something he woke up one day and said, you know, I think I want to be a prophet. This is, this is God's doing. God chose him. God used him. God spoke through him. God set his hand upon Elijah. And Elijah is called by this woman in Zarephath as a man of God. And in the Old Testament, a man of God is not just a nice compliment. It's a, it's a distinct title for one who speaks the word of God a prophet, a preacher. He's a man of God. He's set apart. And so Elijah is a prophet, a mouthpiece of the Lord, of Yahweh. At this point, there are not lots of copies of the Bible around. Uh, There's no publishing house. There's no printing press. And so the way that God speaks to his people is through men men whom he has set apart. So that's important that you see there's a very close identification with the word of Yahweh and the prophets of Yahweh. Elijah is his prophet. And God has sent Elijah to Ahab with a word. Now, the problem is, in verse 1, if there's not going to be any dew or rain for three years... Actually, we don't know in verse 1 how long it's going to be. It's going to end up being a little over three years. I mean, three years in a very hot climate with no dew and not one millimeter of rain. You have the makings of the Sahara Desert and not much lives there. This is a death zone. This is not, well, that's too bad. You know, I'm not going to have a good garden this year. There is no Walmart, there is no super, uh, rather supermarket, there is no refrigeration. No rain 
means death, starvation, disease for everyone who's in that region, including the prophet. Prophets have to eat too. I've maybe told this story, but many years ago now, uh, I at the church I was at formerly, there was a, a in part, as a part of the service, there was a little children's message that I was expected to give. I enjoyed it. Kids would all come up and talk with them. And um, I don't know how we were on the subject of giving one Sunday, but I asked, you know, why why do we give to the church? And one little kid, you know, some little kid sticks up his hand and says, "So the pastor can eat." And um, it's true. I appreciate that. Um, the The prophet's got to eat too. Elijah's got to eat, and this this is going to affect him as well. So what God does is to guard His word, is takes His prophet, places him in a place of safety, and in that place sustains him in some extraordinary ways. There's a brook from which he can drink. And God sends to him, of all birds, ravens. Now, ravens were unclean. You can read this in Dale Ralph Davis's book. It's an interesting observation. They're unclean birds. So God is using unclean birds according to the law of, of uh, his law to sustain and feed his servant. And it sounds interesting until you think about it. The raven's probably bringing basically the equivalent of roadkill or scraps and you know but there's a famine because of no rain and God sustains his prophet Elijah with this brook and with the ravens it's a it's a precious scene just every day this man is completely dependent and I really do appreciate that in the commentary that Dale Ralph Davis points out that we need to be careful and not immediately insists that, well, that's what God will do for all his people in all times. Because think of it, there's no indication that the godly people in the land who's trusted in the Lord were exempt from the famine. There's not a promise here that necessarily everyone, everyone is provided in this way. Dale Ralph Davis, it's helpful, he says, God's prophet receives particular care. But God's people suffer the ravages and deprivation of the Lord's temporal judgment, just as every Baal-kissing apostate did. The passage, then, does not offer me any prophylactic or relief from starvation or other disasters. I'm called to go on worshiping the Lord, even though I never meet ravens bearing gifts. I appreciate that because I think sometimes the way the Bible's been taught to me over the years or the way maybe I've taught the Bible is, is every single instance is something that we can lay hold of. Well, what about our brothers and sisters in Ukraine tonight? Are they exempt from the bombs that are coming? Of course not. We know throughout Christian history that there are times of great trial and persecution and starvation and disease and death. So this is not a wholesale promise for all believers that we will escape somehow temporary discomfort. Rather, this is an instance in which God is preserving his spokesman, his mouthpiece, this prophet. And when others by the thousands likely are perishing, dying, 
It's so common that when, when the, he meets the widow from Zarephath, um, first of all, why is she a widow? Second of all, notice that she says rather unremarkably, rather as a matter of fact, all I have is a little bit of, a little bit of flour. I'm going to cook that, bake that up for my son and I, and then we're going to die. Death is so common in this period of time because of this raging drought and famine that it's remarkable that anyone's alive. And God keeps his servant. His word is an invasive word, a consistent word, and it is a persistent word. Even if God's people are under duress, even if there's times of persecution, even in times when we are caught up in God's judgments. That's what's happening here in New England. Not only here, but other parts of the, but, but in a region that has defied God, basically said, well, we can move on without God. We can do our own thing. We are living in a region that is under the judgment of God. It's just a general principle. And we are experiencing the discomfort of that as people who love God, love God's ways, love Christ. We're in the midst of this very uncomfortable existence, not physically. We are blessed physically. But we live in a land, as I said this morning, that a region where it may be that a majority of people really do think it's okay to kill little boys and girls in the womb at least up to a certain age. Very uncomfortable. We're not exempt from that. But even in those kinds of places, God will have his word persist. Fourth, it's an effectual word, effectual. It accomplishes its content. We see this in verses 8 and following. After a while, even the brook that Elijah drinks from dries up, and God sends him word that he is to go to Zarephath. Now, that's up in pagan territory. That's like Jezebel's home territory. This is up in the Sidonian region. This is with all the Baal worshipers. And so the prophet of Yahweh is to go up to this pagan area, And in of all places, God is going to provide for him there, through of all people, a widow. Now, Davis, again, is helpful in pointing this out. If you're given the option between, in the ancient world, between being sustained by ravens or being sustained by a widow, you might choose the ravens. Because widows in ancient culture had nothing. There was no governmental support for widows, and particularly in a pagan culture, she would just be left on her own. own. She's poor, she's impoverished, she has no resources, she has no ability, in a sense, to protect herself. And of all people, God sends his servant, his prophet, to this widow in this pagan land. There, Elijah calls this woman and asks her for a little water. Isn't that interesting? He says a little detail. He, he doesn't, he's, he's thirsty, 
I mean, he probably hasn't had a good drink since he left the brook. Can, can I just have a little water? He's thoughtful. He's aware. Little oil, uh, sorry, rather a little water. And a piece of bread. He knows these are meager days. But she has heard of this Yahweh. When people have been saying, what's going on with the weather? And remember that for Ahab and Jezebel and other Baal worshippers, Baal is the god of fertility. In other words, he's the one you worship every season to have a good crop. He's the guy that oversees flourishing of crops and flourishing of animals and beasts so that you can eat and live. That's Baal's project according to common belief, pagan belief. Baal hasn't been doing so good. People are asking up in, among the Sidonians, what's going on in Israel? What's going on? Well, did you hear this, this man named Elijah the Tishbite? He went to Ahab and told him that by the word of the God of Israel, Yahweh, that there wasn't going to be rain except by his word. Yahweh is trumping Baal's will, Baal's word. So she knows of Yahweh, as Yahweh your God lives, verse 12, I have no bread. I only have a handful of flour in a bowl, a little oil in the jar. I'm gathering a few sticks. I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. That's a dire situation. But Elijah says to her, verse 13, Do not fear. Go do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. He's not being selfish. He's not being rude. He's been sent by the Lord. And he's calling this pagan Sidonian woman to trust, not in the word of Baal, but in the word of Yahweh. And behold, she did, verse 15, according to the word of Yahweh, and she and her house ate, and her household ate for many days. Amazing. Somehow, used up all the flour, used up all the oil, went to bed, got up in the morning, there was flour and there was oil. God provided, God supplied her need. That's exactly what Yahweh said would happen by the mouth of his prophet, and that's what happened. This word accomplishes and does what it says. Fifthly and finally tonight, in verses 17 through 24, it's not only the word of Yahweh is not only an invasive word, a consistent word, a persistent word, an effectual word, but it is a true word. It's true. In other words, it's not shifty. It won't betray you. It's not like a chair that's um, a little bit wobbly, a little bit shaky. Uh, some of these chairs, uh, they're doing okay, but there's been a few that have, I, we've heard a few creaks and so forth, and sometimes we wonder, is the chair going to hold up? Is it going to betray me? That's not what the word of the Lord is like. It's true. In other words, you can trust it. You can rely on it. You can lean on it. You can count on it. And that's what's tested in verses 17 through 24. 
After all this, after God has supplied oil and water and flour and sustained the widow and her son and her household, after these things, verse 17, her son gets sick and dies. And the woman goes to Elijah. And because she's a woman who's been common, familiar with the pagan gods, and they're shifty. You can't trust them. I mean, you try to please them. You try to placate those gods. But they're always changing their mind. And, and they can get in a bad mood. And, and they can be devious. They can, they can bless you one day and curse you the next out of nowhere for no reason. And she says to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. In other words, you've come to me for, for shifty reasons. God is exposing my sin. God is judging me. This is cruel. God's not you're not dealing with me straight and neither is God is Yahweh she's in grief she's in fear she's overwhelmed Elijah is too he's concerned he asks for her son and takes him and then he prays verse 20 He asked God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I'm sojourning by causing her son to die? We get a little insight into the pain of the prophet's heart. He's not this stoic man. He's the mouthpiece of God. He was sent by God. He's used to pronounce judgment. And don't you think that Elijah's heart aches? as he sees the hollow cheeks of little boys and girls throughout the land, as he sees the evidence of death and disease, and he knows it's because of the judgment of God, but he knows if you really want to point to an immediate source, it's because of the word he spoke, which he was commanded to spoke, and it pains him. He's not indifferent to the suffering of the people and certainly of this woman and her son. He is asking Yahweh about his intentions. He prays to Yahweh, let this child's life return to him. And his life returns. And the result is, verse 24, But the woman said to Elijah, now I know this, that you are a man of God and that the word of Yahweh in your mouth is truth. Not crooked, not twisted, not not two-faced, not not double-tongued. It's straight. God means what he says. There's no ulterior motive. There's no surprises. It's a true word. It will not betray us or let us down. Ever. Even in the darkest days. This is the word of Yahweh. Let's pray. 
Oh God, we thank you that in these days of so many words, words on the radio, words on our phones, texting words, reading words, newspapers, journals, advertising, so many words that are not true, so many words that are broken, so many words that are devious. We're so grateful that your word is truth. That's why we come so regularly to come for this exercise of reading your word and hearing it preached. It's because in this world of lies and deceit, so much confusion, so many different opinions, there's no word like yours. And we thank you that your word is consistent so that as we study even from your word an ancient episode, that the truths that we hear and learn concerning you and your character and your dealings with mankind and your people in particular, that they are absolutely the same, that you have not changed. What a God you are and what a wonderful life-giving word. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.